You don't sell ideas, you sell benefits. Ideas are hobbies. Benefits are what we sell. Benefits are what we offer. So with that, the simplest challenge I ever had in my life was the invention of the max strip on the credit card. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an extraordinary guest to share with you today. We're going to talk to the grandfather of possibilities as he's known the world over. That is Ron Klein, an ordinary man who accomplishes extraordinary things. He's a problem solver, and every solution he's created has resulted in monumental change, either in a new invention or a simple solution. These ideas and innovations that he has created have changed the world. He's the inventor of the magnetic strip on the credit card, the credit card validity checking system, and he's the developer of computerized systems for the real estate MLS listing service, the voice response for the banking industry, and the bond quotation and trade information on the New York Stock Exchange. Ron's latest patent is for a device that enables the visually impaired to have the ability to identify an item when it's in physical range. It utilizes a free smartphone app, and special coded adhesive labels. He's a strategic advisor, consultant, mentor, problem solver, and speaker. Ron, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Wow, what an introduction. Thank (laughs) you, Dr. Richard. (laughs) That sounds great. But you left one thing out. What's that? He's up in years. Up in years. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so proud of it, you know. And my greatest mentor is my wife. Uh, In uh, September, we're going to be celebrating our 60th wedding anniversary. Oh, that is amazing. Fantastic. That is a milestone. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I keep telling everybody it's working out so well, we're going to start living together now. (laughs) (laughs) That's so awesome. Ron, there's so many things that we could talk about, but I know your story, your journey is fascinating. and And I'm grateful that you've come on the show today to share this with the audience. Well, my whole philosophy is simplicity. And when we talk about problems, because you had mentioned I'm a problem solver, you have to turn problems into challenges because a problem by itself is nothing more than a frustration. And why should we live with frustrations? So I say, if you turn that problem into a challenge, there has to be a gift behind every challenge. And behind every challenge, there's an opportunity. And that's what my entire life has been. Um, I've never really had a strategic plan. It's just I analyze the situation I'm in at the time and I carry forth. And probably from the standpoint of simplicity, and that's what I live by, I say I identify what's the given in the challenge, what's the solution I'm looking for, and I don't get caught up in the journey or the minutiae along the way. 
when I hit that problem along the way, I turn that into a challenge and solve it. So I never lose sight as to what's the given that I'm working with and what's the challenge and what's the solution I'm looking for. And probably a good example of that is to start with the credit card invention, magnetic strip on the credit card, which Dr. Richard, it was the simplest challenge I ever had in my life. Because when you, I'm going to take your people along my journey with, if your audience was there with me, after they hear my story, every bit of my story, they probably would have done the same thing. Because I don't picture it as genius. I picture it as just logic. Think, you know, before I even get into the story, I live by three things. I say, and I'm going to use my fingers. You have to be smart, daring, and different. And what does it mean? Smart doesn't mean a PhD from Harvard. Smart means learn something new every day. Pay attention. Be aware. You can learn from everyone. Everybody has something to offer. So be smart, period. And daring, don't be afraid to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not learning anything. We learn by our mistakes. In fact, I, I use the simple analogy. If you painted it the wrong color the first time, paint it a different color. That's the way you handle mistakes. And the last thing is to be different. You don't sell ideas. You sell benefits. Ideas are hobbies. Benefits are what we sell. Benefits are what we offer. So with that, the simplest challenge I ever had in my life was the invention of the mag strip on the credit card. A major department store came to me back in 1964. 64, and I worked on the project from 64 to 66. And they said, we have a problem. The problem was they called it a charge purchase. They had this little piece of plastic with your name embossed on it, an account number, and the date. And they would give that to a merchant to make a purchase. They called it a charge purchase. And the merchant would have to look up that number in a big, long book that the, the credit card companies would give to the merchant every month. And that was the negative account numbers. And then he would have to look up the, your number in there. If your number wasn't in there, you were good to go. But the burden, first of all, it took too long. It was very slow because it was the burden was on the merchant. And then the burden was further on the merchant because he had to make the, the decision whether that person could have credit or not. And it was predicated on him finding your number in that book or not. I said, that's pretty simple. Let's take all those negative account numbers, put it into some kind of memory system. Now, this was 1966. Well, the memory systems then were big magnetic drums that moved in milliseconds. And I figured, okay, because there was no internet at the time and there was no, uh, there was no big computer systems. So it was a magnetic drum. And I said, okay, we'll take all those negative account numbers that they give the merchant every month, put it into that memory system. Then I'll give the merchant a little keypad and hook up wires to their memory system, run it through the ceilings and the floors in the department stores. And the merchant would key in the account number. If it didn't pop up on that memory system, good to go. Very simple. Everybody would have done the same thing. But I figured the burden is still on the merchant because he has to key in the number. Right around that time, reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders came out. 
And I said, wow, I know how that works. Now, reel-to-reel tape recorders, that was the first invention of recording music and sound on a tape. It had a couple of motors and it had two big reels and it would move the tape past the little capstan and you would record and then it would read it. And then the next evolution was the uh, the cartridge and then after that, the cassette. But basically, it was just recording information on a piece of magnetic tape. And I figured, I got a great idea. If I take a little piece of that tape, record the account number on it, and then build a little device that mimics a tape reader and make you the motor, paste it on the back of the credit card and slide that thing through and make you the motor. How simple is that? And that was the invention of the mag strip on the, on the back of the credit card. That is so, such an incredible story. And I know you say that it's uh, your humility is unbelievable that you say that it's, it's a simple thing that anybody would have done. Um, but like you said, smart, daring, different. You know, you certainly applied those things yeah. in, in creating that. Uh, Ron? Well, there, there was one other thing I can add to that because most people know, remember some of those, some of your listeners might remember if you would speed up the tape, it would sound like Mickey Mouse. If yep. you would slow it down, it would sound like Dracula. So the, the secret was keep it constant. You had to keep it constant so that it would read how you recorded. Well, remember, this is not constant because everybody swipes at a different speed. Remember, you would push it in slow, pull it out fast. So what I did, the ingenuity was to come up with some kind of synchronization that wouldn't care about the speed. So I built in what the old teletype coding of start-stop synchronization. Look for the first change. Everything after that was data. Then at the end of the data, it would be a change back to normal. And that's how it was. Fantastic. And I, I'm curious about prior to that. I mean, were you always your whole life as a kid and having these ideas? Like what really started you on this path of, of creating these solutions and inventing things? Never thought of telling, telling that part of the story. Well, my grandfather, my mother's dad, was a very, he was a famous inventor. And he was my mantra. I followed him everywhere because I loved what he would do. He was always involved in interesting things. He invented the first boiler steam propulsion mechanism for steamships to make the props go. It was a boiler mechanism. They created steam and it would generate the props. He was the inventor of that. And then during the First World War, he invented the torpedo detector for submarines. Hmm. And that was granted a patent. And then in 1940, in the early 1940s, he invented the first rabbit ears for television. The antenna, I don't know if anybody remembers that. It had a switch on it and had rabbit ears. and That's how you would tune it in. He invented that. Then he invented the steam pressing machine for tailors. Years ago, the big thing that would come down like that, uh, he invented that. So he was my idol. And the most important, and he was a diamond cutter also. And uh, the other thing, he was an excellent tailor. And years ago, they had sewing machines that they weren't motorized. You would, they had pedals, and you would pedal them, and it would make the needle go up and down and sew. And he was so good at tailoring. That's how the pressing machine came about. He taught me how to sew. So I was always hanging around him. He passed when I was 16 years old. And I happened 
he happened to pass in my arms. I was visiting him mm. in the hospital, but it was such a wonderful sensation to be with him at that time. And he left me, he had a 1929 old model A Ford. And he left that to me as a, what he willed to me. As a 16-year-old kid, I had no understanding of value. Now, here comes the biggest mistake I ever made. I didn't want it. To me, a 1929-year-old car, that was a piece of junk. I sold it for $100. Wow. I should be whipped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a classic antique. So anyway, the other part of my early story is I was born in 1935, by the way. If anybody knows how old I am, I'm going on 84. But I'm not empty yet because I keep going. And this part of my story, I came from a very, very wealthy family. My dad was a mailman and my mom worked in a department store. And my biggest toy was this, the shirt cardboard that came out of my dad's shirts from the cleaners and a roll of masking tape. And I would invent all my own toys and build my own stuff. And then for my birthday, they would buy me something special, a bowl of string so I could do other things. I was drafted into the service at age 18. The Korean War was on. I was in combat at the Korean War. Came out of the Korean War, and fortunately on the GI Bill, I was able to go for my, edu my education. And I'm educated as an electronic engineer and mathematician. However, I was really an entrepreneur and did a lot of starting my own companies and creating lots of things, but having the knowledge of engineering background. So that's how I got to the first invention, which was the credit card. Long story. Very worthy. But a great story and, and worth the words to be sure. Ron, are there any inventions? You've invented so many different things that have helped people in, in a multitude of ways. The credit card's obviously uh, you know, a hugely recognizable one. Are there any other inventions that are top of mind for you that you're extraordinarily proud of and, and have a really fun story behind how it came to be? Well, they're all fun stories. The most important thing is I never did anything unless it provided a benefit for people. So all of the little stories I'll tell you along the way always provided a benefit. And they came about from a need. So I didn't sit there in a think tank. I'm going to give you a little example. I'm not an inventor like this with my head in a think tank all day saying, what can I come up with today? I'm an innovator. If I see a challenge and there's a simple solution to it, I'll take care of it and I'll do it. So all along the way, my, my second thing that I was involved with was interesting. It was how to come up with the formula and system on how to grow chickens to full maturity, healthy maturity in eight weeks instead of the normal long-term maturity. And I did that for Frank Purdue and... He had the main formula and I worked along with him. So that was one of the things I guess I was credited with on coming up with the system to grow chickens. So that I was pretty proud of that. And then along from there in 1967, I developed the multiple listing system for realtors. Pretty simple. I came up with the terminals, the acoustic couple of terminals and the printers and so on and so forth, and the whole system to provide multiple listing service so that people would know when they when they have a house to list and somebody else was interested in something maybe similar to that. So I built that system. And then also around the same time, it was the evolution of when touch-tone phones were coming out. 
replacing the dial phones. And I came up with the other the idea for voice response, that if somebody wanted to key in information about their bank account to their bank, and the bank received it in a form that they could decode and turn it into spoken voice, you could get voice back from your account information, which says a simple approach of hitting your touchstone phone and all those things in the keypad. Every time you push a button, I discovered it was two tones. It was the X and Y coordinates. And I could take those two tones, send it off down the telephone line to a receiving device that would detect those tones turn it into data saying, oh, that's a one, that's a seven, and so on and so forth. Turn it into data, match that with your bank account, then turn it into voice. And the way I did voice, it was simple in those days, the big magnetic drum with a lot of reed heads, I would put voice syllables on each reed head. And remember, the first voice response would come out speaking like this, real mechanical. Well, then after a while, I synthesized it. But I would take the data from your bank account, convert it to syllables, feed that back to your telephone. So you could get on your phone, key in your account number, and listen to what your, the balance of your account is. Well, it was a great invention, but a lot of people are aggravated with voice response today because they want to talk to humans and not hear voices. But that was another invention I did back in the 60s. And my, my company started to grow rapidly because. Those days, there was no internet and there was no software. Everything was built with little circuit boards, resistors, capacitors, transistors. So my company was growing people-wise because I needed engineers to come up with the idea of laying out the circuit, draftsmen to physically lay the circuit board out so we could send it off to circuit board printers and they would print the traces, and then a production area that would put the little components in the holes on the circuit boards. So the company grew rapidly. And after a while of providing all this equipment to the banking industry and the MLS industry, um, I needed money to pay all these people and grow and buy inventory. And I had a private placement. And that's when my education learned on, okay, you know how to build things. How do you make money to get to pay the people? And I raised three quarters of a billion dollars uh, to get this company going. And in those days, in the 60s, that was equivalent to mega millions. And I did really well, and the company continued to grow further along. Then my investor came and said, you need more money to grow even larger. We've got to take you public. I didn't know what public meant from a manhole cover. So... What's public? He said, oh, well, we're going to go on the stock exchange. We're going to you know, have a private, have a placement and sell stock and so on. Well, I figured I didn't know what that meant. And I was still a young guy. So I went to the library and got the 1934 Securities Act manual. And I read it from cover to cover. I became an expert on public offerings. We had a public offering, raised another couple million dollars, which was like $10 million. And the company was well along on their way. Now it was attracting attention, and a major insurance company came to me and said, we like your ideas, we like your products, we like what you have, we would like to acquire you. <laughs> and I was right around the time of retirement age. I was 34 years old. <laughs> I figured, okay, I'll let them acquire me. 
So sold the company and I figured I'm going to go fish. Well, after I fished for three weeks, I had it. I was a worker bee. I figured I got to go back to work. So I'm going to let you take a rest, digest that, and then I'll tell you the rest of the story, which really soared high. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Well, it's it's interesting because you know what what you said resonates with me, and that so many entrepreneurs that I talk to, you know, who have achieved great success at a young age, and you know, either they get acquired or they they sell it, they walk away, whatever the circumstances are. Entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs. Like they just can't stay away from creating. And it sounds like that was very true for you. Absolutely. So what I did was after I fished for three weeks, because we had a house on the uh, on the water down on the Jersey Seashore, and I had a boat out there, and I figured this is wonderful. And then I, I became pretty depressed because I would watch everybody go to work, and here I am, a 34-year-old young guy with no job. You know, what's my purpose in life? I knew what my, my mission was originally was to create, build, and develop. I knew what my, my vision was, take it to the ultimate. But purpose, I had no purpose left. That was horrible. I was unemployed. So I went back to my people and I said, here's your option stock back. Here's everything back. Set me free. I don't want to be your consultant. I just want my freedom. And of course, you know, I still had my, my original stock that I sold. And I figured, okay. And they said, fine, because they were happy taking the company. I figured, now what am I going to do? So I named it a pretty, very general. In fact, I called it General Associates because I had no idea as to what I was <laughs> going to do. And I said, I'm pretty sharp in telecommunication products and communications. I know that well. I'm going to represent other people's products and go out there and start selling. I don't want what I know I don't want. I don't want a big company, a lot of buildings. I don't want a lot of employees anymore. Labor intensified. I don't, I want to create. I want to build. So I, I, I want something that I can make a regenerative income and not have a lot of employees, just a couple of assistants to myself. So I said, now find out. So I started calling on some of the old clients selling multiple um, selling uh, modems and communication equipment. And I was calling on Associated Press one day because they were a good client of mine in the past. And I had some communication products to sell that I was representing from another company. And while I was sitting there and working with them, I saw a bid sheet on his desk from Western Union. That changed my life. That was really changed my life. And I said to him, I said, Paul, what is this? He said, oh, Western Union puts up bids on their old teletype equipment every week 
that they refurbish. And we being in the communication business, as Associated Press, we have hundreds of teletypes. But you know what? We're so overstocked now. I said, you can bid it if you want. He said, you're welcome to take the bid sheet. Anybody can do it. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. You know, I, I like teletypes. I know all about them. That was the, pre- the preface to email. They had these machines that looked like typewriters. And they had paper tape punches and everything. You'd put them on a telephone line. You'd call somebody else up that has another teletype machine. And you can talk to them by typing. It was hardware email. And that was back in the, the 50s, and well, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even into the 70s. So I, I rented a truck, and I went to Allentown, Pennsylvania. I lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and it was about 60 miles away. And I went to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I said, I, I want to see what you have here. I'm interested in getting into the teletype business because I figured I could buy surplus teletypes, strip them down, clean them. They were already refurbished and sell the parts for 50 cents on the dollar. I'd be in business. It would, what a fantastic thing, because everybody in the world had teletype catalogs and price sheets, and they had to order directly from Western Union and Teletype Corporation. And I figured if I had, if I was the biggest supplier of those machines, I could sell the parts. Great business. I figured, what an opportunity. So I turned reading a bid sheet on a guy's desk into an opportunity. And while I was there, they said, we're in the process, Ron, of just diluting ourselves and divesting ourselves of all of our teletypes. We're going in the satellite business. We have 12,000 old, old machines, that are the old Model 28 machines that were built in the 40s and 50s. In fact, most of them are used on battleships to communicate during the Second World War. And we're divesting ourselves of them, and you're free to bid on them. So, wow, what an opportunity. I mean, some of them are already refurbished. I could do things with it. I bid pennies, pennies for 12,000 machines, pennies on the dollar. And I figured, great. Well, within two days, they called me, and they said, you want all 12,000 machines. Wow, what an opportunity. Big mistake. Stupid Ron at 34 years old, you never asked who are the other bidders? Where are they? What's what's going on here? Why didn't everybody else bid on them? I found out 4,000 were in a warehouse in Allentown, Pennsylvania. 8,000 were all over the country. Hmm. California, Chicago, uh, Texas. And they said, now you realize, Ron, you have to take possession of these machines within 30 days. You won the bid. Huh. 30 days. They weigh hundreds of pounds each. They were gigantic. They were iron, big old iron machines. I didn't win a bid now. I got myself a liability. Talk about mistakes. Big mistake. What do you do? Okay, audience, what do you do? I got 4,000. I'm in business. Great. I got 8,000. I'm in big trouble. What do you do? You call the junk man. (laughs) (laughs) I called the junk man. This junk man was pretty smart. They came and said, wow, okay, let's take a look. Let's see what you have. They opened up the bottom of these big iron machines. They were loaded with electronic circuit cards. Okay, that's to make them work, communicate. So they had keyboards, printers, 
paper tape punches and all this electronics in the bottom. They started pulling these electronics cards out and they noticed that these cards were made back in the 40s and 50s and they all had gold traces on them because gold had great conductivity and it was cheap back in the 40s and 50s. It was like $35 an ounce, something like that. And it wouldn't rust when the when the machines were out at sea on the on the in the battleships. So great. And I said, okay, what do we do now? And they said, if you submerge these circuit cards in cyanide, it eats the gold off and rises the gold salt to the surface. We skim that off, do an assay on it, we'll split the profits with you 50-50. And right around that time, in the early 70s, Gold went from $35 an ounce to $800 an ounce. We sold 8,000 machines loaded with hundreds and hundreds of circuit cards to gold depositories to extract the gold salts out. We were so rich in cash. We were incredible. Oh, my God. (laughs) What is this? The gift behind this challenge of junk to gold. And then I said, uh-oh, but here I am again. Now I didn't have anything that had any value. I had steel cabinets, printers, keyboards, punches. Now what do I do? Am I going to pull these things apart and sell the parts within what do I have left, 25 days? So I called the junk man back. This was a different junk dealer. And he said, okay, let's take a look and see what you have. He says, the printers, the keyboards, and all that take too long to sell. He said, we just have to scrap that out. He said, but your cabinets, your steel cabinets are loaded with chromium. I said, huh? It's chromium. Chromium is what's in the steel to keep them from rusting. And we happen to know that there's a Japanese auto manufacturer. I'm not going to use the name right now. I'd like to. But you get the biggest Japanese manufacturer of autos that is now starting to ship their cars into the U.S. They have a tremendous rust problem with their steel bodies, and they're looking for wherever they can buy chrome. And they said, let's offer all these chrome chromium cabinets to them and just give them to them if they take all the scrap metal away. That's what we did. I was free and clear of my liability. It's a really wonderful story and, and really accentuates the adage with respect to the gold, one man's trash truly is another man's treasure. That is unbelievable. Exactly. And all this happened because I paid attention and ran a bid sheet on somebody's desk and said, let me go check it out. What opportunity? You never know. You know, you can be on the on the expressway or you can be on the interstate and you're going from point A to point B and halfway there, horrible, heartful, dreadful accident and the interstate is shut down, okay? Totally shut down. You can't, what do you want to do? You have to get off the interstate. That's the given. Get around the accident and get back on. But while you're off the interstate, you're passing a lot of farmland and small towns. Well, you can just keep driving through and get, and go on. But if you turn your head and look around, you might find some opportunities along the way and say, you know what? There's an opportunity. Unfortunately, that situation took me off the road, but look what I just discovered. Now you get back on the road and you go towards your goal and say, you never forget about that opportunity. Smart, 
daring and different. So, hey, audience, remember, you're with me and you're, I'm not doing anything so genius yet. You're with me, so you would have been doing the same thing that I did. What do you do when you're saddled with this liability? Call the junk man. There's nothing else left. Because 30 days from now, they're going to put those things on the train and bring them up to my front garage door. So here I am now. I'm in business. I have 4,000 teletype machines. Some are ready to be sold and cleaned up, maybe repainted. I can call the ITTs, the RCAs, and sell them these machines that I own for nothing. And they were machines that sold. Some of these machines sold for thousands of dollars in brand new condition. I could sell them for anything, and I was a hero. I could give them leases. I can give them full payout leases. I had the opportunity to do anything. So I had a warehouse that I took over that Western Union had them in. I paid the rent on the warehouse, had the 4,000 machines. And now, three months later, after I get started and I'm looking to hire myself a technician to clean these things up, and I was going to start calling on potential clients to buy these, Plus, I can also sell parts. By the way, the other thing I did, I turned the paper tape punch machines that didn't punch clear through. They just made Chad. I turned those into Braille punchers for the blind. Hmm. I figured, what a great idea for communication. Instead of just punching holes and using it for data storage, if I punched holes in some Braille code, now the braille, now the blind could read these paper tape readers as it was coming out. They could determine what it is and not have to worry about the print material. But aside from that, three months after I got started, I got a call from the New York Stock Exchange. What an opportunity. I knew nothing about the New York Stock Exchange. I get a call and they said, we called Western Union. They have 273 special wall mount teletypes that we used on the trading floor for inquiry stations. And we're expanding our trading floor operation. It's the early 70s. And we find out that they sold it to a little company called General Associates in New Jersey. We need those machines. Are you interested in doing something? Because we're tired of renting the machines equivalents from AT&T. It's very expensive. What do you have? We'll buy your 273 machines. Are you ready to sell them? I said, I got a great idea. I'll give them to you on a full payout lease over two years so you can buy them for pocket change. If you give me a maintenance contract to maintain them on the trading floor while they're in service. They said, absolutely. We don't want to maintain them. We've got an engineering department and so on and so forth. You know a lot about teletypes. Hire a technician here. Come to the exchange, install them, boom. Two weeks later, I was in business. I installed 200 teletypes. I had 73 as spares. Of the 200, I was renting them for $55 a month, which I owned for a penny. $55 a month times 200 machines. I was so happy. And then I charged them maintenance, monthly maintenance to maintain those machines for life, forever. If the machine would crap out, we would immediately just pull the printer out, put in one of our spares. I would take the printer back to my little shop in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I had a technician there that would repair it. I would take it back to the exchange the next day. I was a courier service. I hired a technician in New York to change the machines out. 
They gave us a two-way radio to be on the trading floor from the New York Stock Exchange. When a machine, when a printer crapped out, they would radio to us, service immediately. Boom. We would service it in seconds. They were never down. We would replace it. I was now in business. I was a maintenance company at the New York Stock Exchange. I had two employees. I was making money. I owned all the equipment for nothing. I was so happy. I was so happy I had a cash cow. While I'm on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and I had to be there every day, I, I felt like I was a Kahuna. I'm there and I'm saying, what an interesting place. At the end of the day, there's paper on the floor almost up to my waist because this company just worked on little pieces of paper. They would write this down and write it down and they'd be running around with pieces of paper. It traded on inertia. There was no automation, very little automation. It was all how they had initially started the thing hundreds of years ago. I think this is ridiculous. This is functioning on inertia, similar to the government. I can automate so much stuff here and help them. Uh, and I, I came up with a lot of ideas, program trading and so on and so forth. And I went to them with the, some of these ideas and I said, I can do this for a pittance. My engineers, I can hire a software guy. We can do this with some of these PCs for program trading so you don't have to run around with pieces of paper. Are you interested? And they said, what do we have to lose? Try it. So I was making building little enhancements, getting these little purchase order jobs. And I was so happy performing and helping automate the exchange. Then in 1983, I discovered they had the New York Stock Exchange traded two types of securities, stocks, equity, in other words, stock and equity, which is the same, and then corporate listed bonds. Corporate listed bonds was the debt that they traded on the stock of the member firms. So if you had IBM that traded their stock there, IBM also traded their corporate listed bonds. The bonds was what they would issue for their operation on a daily basis. They would sell bonds, pay interest on it, mature, they would reissue it. So bonds were a constant economy that they would constantly trade and pay interest on the debt. And that's so they would basically bond as you're lending them money. So if you buy a corporate listed bond, just like if you bought a treasury, you're lending the government money. If you bought the corporate listed bonds, you're lending that corporation money and they would pay you interest on it until it matured and then they give you your money back. Great. Okay. They had automated the New York Stock Exchange equity market, stock market. They had never automated the bond market. I'd go to the bond trading floor and these guys are on the phone shouting and flopping their hands and screaming and saying, what's going on here? Why aren't they automating this and trading it upstairs in their offices? So I went to the exchange and I said, you know, I think I could automate this very easily because they're trading over the telephone with their other brokers back and forth. And it's so easy to automate. If I could automate this, would you give me an exclusive license to disseminate information on the automation? They said, Ron, they've been trading bonds like this for 205 years. They're never going to automate it. This is an auction market. And I said, no, nah, it's automation time. I said, I can build a little box, put it on your main ticker line, 
and just extract the bond information and send that to their offices over a communication line, give them a video terminal, they can trade right at their desk a lot faster. They said, it will never happen. I said, well, you give me the license. If I bring to you a contract drafted up where I have an exclusive license, will the New York Stock Exchange sign it? They said, yes, stop bothering us. They signed a contract with me. I said, I'm determined I'm going to build this little box. I built the little box, okay? And it worked great. I put it on the main line on the trading floor. Because I was there, I had the, the badge to be there every day anyway. I put it on the, the main line of the trading floor, bought a little video terminal. It worked great. I started making phone calls to every trader. And I said, I want to tell you what I have. Well, if I wasn't buying or selling a bond, they would hang up on me. Who knew? We're not interested in salespeople. So I figured, what do I do? I went out and befriended the leading bond trading manager on the Wall Street New York Exchange for bonds. And I said, I'm going to give you a little box. I'm going to run a communication line, a lease line into your office. I'm going to give you a video terminal free for 30 days. It's going to be the same information that they have on the bond trading floor. Oh, you're going to have it far in advance because I'm taking it right off the line before they even trade it on the, on the phone. Will you try it? And they said, certainly, Ron, because I became real good friends with him. He said, certainly, what do we have to lose? He puts the box in while we installed it at our expense, starts using it. His phone rang off the hook. All the traders from the floor start calling him and saying, Joe, what the heck are you doing? We can't buy or sell a bond for the last two weeks. You're topping every bond. He said, oh, you need one of those little Ron Klein boxes. They said, what's a Ron Klein box? Well, you call this number and get a hold of Ron. He'll tell you about this little Ron Klein box. It's incredible. My phone rang off the hook. There's 1,500 Wall Street traders trading those corporate listed bonds. They're calling me. My phone's ringing off the hook. We need one of those Ron Klein boxes. Well, you got to join my buying club. What do you mean your buying club? I figured now's my opportunity. I said, you got to pay me $10,000 each trader just to join my buying club and trade bonds electronically. They said, that's ridiculous. That's expensive. They said, but we have no choice. We can make that back in a couple of weeks. This was fat times on Wall Street. I said, okay, but now, and you can do the math. 1,500 traders, $10,000 each. I had more money than I need to build all the boxes I wanted. I said, but now, of course, you need the machine. You need the little box and the video terminal. Well, the box cost me $100 to build. And I said, you have to buy that box. And they said, oh, no, we don't buy anything on Wall Street. We only rent equipment. But okay, cost me $100. I said, How's $300 a month? Fantastic. We love it. I had that on the Wall Street market for 26 years. Mm. 1,500 boxes at $300 a month, providing transparency for corporate bond listed bonds for 26 years, plus the $10,000 a head I charged for the bond market. Audience, I read a bid sheet on the guy's desk. That's how this came about. I made a mistake by bidding and not asking anything about that. Terrible mistake. 
I figured, how do I get out of this mistake? That's my story. What came after that? The Philadelphia Stock Exchange, the New York Futures Exchange, the CBOE, the American Stock Exchange, and I was there for 26 years. Amazing. And, and Ron, you have articulated through story wonderful examples of overcoming obstacles, finding outside-the-box solutions, and in the process, helping people while creating financial wealth for yourself. Uh, we're getting close to time here, but I, I wanted to ask you a question since you have been so prominent in the development of so many technologies, taking us from an analog world into that of a digital one. What is your perspective on the coming emergence of technologies like artificial intelligence and how do you see them impacting us for the positive and the negative? It's all going to be positive. Here's, here's the story. Goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds. Millennials, not to insult you, have an attention span of eight seconds. If you don't get your message across in eight seconds, they're not going to listen to the rest of the story. The rest of the story has a lot of AI in it, has a lot of uh, real human intelligence in it, has a tremendous story, tremendous benefits it talks about. But you've got to get your message across. The main message of smart, daring, and different, which contains benefits in the first eight seconds. Otherwise, you're going to lose them, and they're going to take over. They represent 75% of the market. They want experience. They don't want obligations. So electronics is here. Years ago, many, many years ago, I was lecturing at some of the colleges, telling them about how banking is going to be taken over by this and so on and so forth. Everything that I spoke came true. You better really fall in love with that electronic leash that you walk around with because that is the heartbeat of the world. This is called an electronic leash. There's other names for it too. I think they call them cell phones, stuff like that. Have you ever heard of them? I am vaguely familiar with them. Okay. Everybody in the world is going to be tied into an electronic leash. So what's going to happen? What happened to the old tape machines? What happened to the cassettes? What's going to happen to the PC, the desktop? It's going to go bye-bye. What's going to happen to the laptop? Bye-bye. No time for that stuff. The whole world is going to be associated with the electronic leash and the cloud. I'm on top of that. I've started another company. I've built a lot of things. It's going to be very disruptive, and it concentrates on that. And if your people would like to examine some of the things without me telling you quickly what it is, go on my latest web. First of all, my website is number four. RonKlein.com. That's physically the number four, R-O-N-K-L-E-I-N.com. And you'll see lots of things that exemplify the story that I told you. Perfect. My company and the wave of the future, which is incredible, very disruptive, is called EnvisionEli.com. E-N-V-I-S-I-O-N. Eli, E-L-I dot com. And the apps associated with that are free. Download the apps or call me for some information about that. After you go on the website, download the apps. It'll blow your mind. Right. Whatever. 
Fantastic. I, I, I can't wait to check that out. I'm sure our listeners want to get in that on that as well. Uh, Ron, one we- thing that I did to, to get there, and I'm going to talk fast on this, I developed something very simple for the blind because I had breakfast with one of my blind friends one day, I asked him what was on his wish list, and quickly he told me he wanted something simple. So anyway, I came up with an app on your cell phone, free, that reads these special little QR-coded labels that we code. You can buy 100 labels that are reusable adhesive for $20 and paste them on anything you want to identify. Point your smartphone at it, scan the label, tells you what it is. You'll learn all about that on the EnvisionEli.com website too. So I know you're running out of time. That's why I just want to talk fast about that. I'm not empty yet. I'm still creating. And not until I'm fully empty will I stop. I love that. Yeah, Ron, you, you've shared so, such great wisdom with us today. And you, you've already given us where people can go to find out more about you. And we'll, of course, have links to everything you talked about in the Daily Helping app, as well as in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. But I like to wrap up every episode by asking my guest a single question. That is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? Two things. Number one, and I'm not going to explain it in a wordy, lengthy sentence. Simplicity. Simplicity. That's it. Simple. There's not a challenge in the world that can't be reduced to simplicity. Most people start in the journey. Most people start in the minutia. Simplicity. The other thing I want to leave with you, the one word that's so important, if it's not a benefit, it's a hobby. Be smart, daring, and different. Provide benefits, not hobbies. I love it. Ron, it has been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and spending time with us today. Thank you, Dr. Richard. It's, an, it's very, so enjoyable. I love it. Wonderful. And that electronic leash. <laughs> I think we'll all be doing that for sure. And to each and every one of you who tuned in to listen to this episode, thank you so much for checking us out. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs>